Today we'll be reading James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has provided to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. So as many of you know, in addition to being a pastor at First City Church, I also sometimes work as a physical therapist. And so as we begin this morning, as we enter into the spring season, start the month of April, as some of you may be considering starting new rhythms, setting new goals, I thought it might be helpful to put my physical therapist hat on and offer you a a few motivational quotes that you may be familiar with. Be stronger than your excuses. Be a warrior, not a worrier. Aim for the moon. If you miss it, you may hit a star. I've also heard aim for the stars. If you miss it, you may hit the moon, which makes more sense to me. Slogans and statements like these are used to to help us push through challenges, to encourage us to take risks, to not let failure define us. But at the same time, slogans and statements like these, there are times, rather than helpful, they seem kind of hollow, maybe even harmful. They dismiss the pain we experience or disregard how hard it is sometimes to keep going. As much as the world tells us we can achieve whatever we want, the obstacles we encounter tell us something much different. This is why motivational quotes and motivational speakers can sometimes be the source of satire on a show like Saturday Night Live. For people of my generation or around my generation, there was an actor, Chris Farley. He would play motivational speaker Matt Foley. And if you've never seen Matt Foley, you you may want to look him up on, on YouTube. Those of you that are familiar with Matt Foley, you probably have never forgotten his words. My name is Matt Foley, and I'm a motivational speaker. Now, let me get started by, by, letting, by giving you a bit of scenario about myself, about what my life is all about. First off, I am 35 years old, I am divorced, and I live in a van down by the river. You're probably, you probably think you're going to get the world by its tail, wrap it around and pull it down and put it in your pocket. But I'm here to tell you, you're not going to amount to jack squat. (laughs) 
There's no, no false facades with Matt Foley. It was raw and authentic. Now, sometimes people use statement, statements from the book of James as slogans and mottos to motivate. But all too often, they seem too shallow. We were introduced to, to such a slogan a, a couple weeks ago. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. It's punchy. It's easy to remember. Many of you probably have it memorized or kind of memorized. It's a slogan that you can't get out of your head. But but this slogan, when someone is experiencing a variety of, of trials, it can seem shallow. When you hear this quoted from the book of James, many of you may want to push back. James, don't you know the seriousness and sorrows of the trials I'm facing? Joy in trials, you're out of your mind. You're missing my heart. I met a man this week, a few years younger than myself. If we're doing competitive comparisons on suffering, which is not a wise thing to do, He's right up there. Two or three years ago, his wife leaves on a planned trip. He loses contact with her. They search for her for over two weeks. When they find her, they discover she has committed suicide, leaving him alone to raise three young children. An agonizing trial. Soon after she was found, he told me someone offered, consider it a great joy, my brother, whenever you experience various trials. That slogan was like a punch in the gut. Maybe some of you can identify with an experience like that. So I have this question. Does this counsel from James, like many other simplistic slogans and cliches, provide motivation for a while only to fall flat and fail? Or does James have something more to offer? As we reflect on the rest of chapter 1, it's clear James is aware that it is difficult to experience joy joy in trials. Pastor Chris explored last week how James addressed people that may be experiencing financial hardship, how to consider the richness of that circumstance, to consider it joy. This week, we're going to explore how within the trials we're experiencing, God gives us good gifts. We can rejoice in trials because we know we have a God who gives good gifts. That title of my sermon this morning is God Gives Good Gifts. If you have a Bible or Bible app, open up to the passage read earlier, James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. We're going to work through those verses slowly, one at a time, and consider a contrast between two dispositions we can adopt when we encounter trials. One that will lead to a form of death. And the other will birth us in, in us a kind of newness of life and perspective. Engaging these two dispositions help, will help us consider what it means to surrender desires leading to death and seize or take hold of good gifts leading 
to life. So let's jump into verse 12 and, to begin, and begin to look at the contrasting dispositions James offers. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. See, trials that we encounter, they can very much become tests. James is not silly and superficial. He understands the magnitude of the temptations and struggles that we experience. We are faced with a challenging choice to turn to Christ or to turn away from Christ. Biblical scholar Alec Mahir offers this observation. We all know only too many people who have ceased to walk with God under the pressure of trouble or tragedy. The call to endure and mature was abandoned in favor of the suggestion to give up. Every trial is also a temptation. Some of you know all too well what Ma'ir is referring to. Situations of significant suffering where you or others are sometimes tempted to walk away. Where you experience ongoing depression or anxiety. Where you feel alone in marriage or alone in not being married. Situations you heard the doctor utter words that you never wanted to hear. Trials where that promotion or job that you needed to provide for your family, you didn't get it. You young adults, I don't, I don't want to leave you out. You have trials too. The trial of waiting what seems like forever to do more adult type things. To be recognized, to be seen as trustworthy. Whatever it is, there is often a temptation to turn away from Jesus and turn away from others. Rather than abandon our faith, James wants us to experience something different. So let's talk about how he invites us to surrender desires leading to death. Here's verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. See, people who believe in God can sometimes use that belief to blame God. God, God can become a sort of scapegoat. And a, a view of God in a church like ours, where we affirm something called the sovereignty of God, that God is the supreme or ultimate authority over all things, over our lives, it can lead to faulty conclusions. When we experience a time of trial, we are sometimes tempted to blame God. God is responsible for my feelings of despair. God is trying to crush me. God is punishing, punishing me. God, you say you love your people. If what I'm experiencing is love, I don't want any part of that. This disposition of blaming God in trial, it is very much on display in the book of Job. In that book, we are introduced to a husband and wife experiencing material blessing. The blessing of good health and the blessing of having a number of children. They are a picture of health and prosperity, experiencing much of what we might consider to be the American dream. 
then they lose it all. The news is reported in rapid succession. Lone servants that survive speak over one another frantically reporting Job and his wife. They've had their oxen stolen by one group of enemies. Their camels raided by another. Their sheep burned up by fire. And all of their precious children crushed to death as they were celebrating at a home when a powerful wind kicked in. In a moment, everything earthly that offered life, purpose, and meaning, it was taken away. And if that wasn't enough, if Job still had his health, he then experienced the onset of agonizing physical pain, sores all over his body. How do Job and his wife respond? His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity. Curse God and die. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. You see, sometimes rather than endure, we distance ourselves from God. Rather than cling to him, we curse him. Rather than turn towards him, we turn away. Rather than worship, we wallow. How do we get there? How does that happen? James continues in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Our view of God's sovereignty and God's control over all things, it does not dismiss personal responsibility. Our inner desires are are a problem. Now, some may wonder if James is being too simplistic here. I mean the feelings of despair, the feelings of depression, the desire to turn away and withdraw. It is far more complex than a simple desire. What about the devil? What about struggles with depression and anxiety? James, this is so motivational speakerish of you to make something far too shallow and far too simple. Well, James is not one to dismiss the power of the devil. In chapter 3, when discussing our battle to embrace wisdom, he offers, but if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. He affirms the demonic is at work when we encounter envy and selfish ambition in our heart. In chapter 4, when James is teaching God's people to embrace humility, he says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James knows the battle we face. It is far more complex than simple decisions to embrace right thinking or to reject wrong thinking. We encounter the demonic and we encounter the devil. But here, as we consider our response to trial, he wants us to surrender dismissing personal responsibility. He wants us to surrender a victim mentality. In a culture where, we, where many want to dismiss individual responsibility, saying, this is how I was made. 
This is my personality. This is my Enneagram style. I am the product of my biology or my biochemistry. I am the product of my circumstances. Free will and individual decisions are sometimes dismissed. James is pushing back. Our inner desires, they entice us to draw us away from God. The Greek word that James uses here for entice, it's actually a fishing term. We see the bait. That bait looks attractive. Believing God is good, surrendering our pain, enduring in a trial, that is near, not nearly as attractive as pursuing desires to turn away, to abandon the faith. James is saying, don't take that bait. If you take that bait, what happens is not good. Don't be enticed by evil desires. Now, when James says someone is enticed by his own evil desires, it's important to clarify. He is not saying that the desires you have are all bad. Your desire for connection your desire to be affirmed, your desire for a particular kind of family, your desire for your child to follow Jesus, those are not evil desires. The problem is sometimes we elevate those desires to God-like status, where we can't live without them. I'm, in not getting those desires, we respond in selfish ambition. We respond in fear. We withdraw from God and others. We become jealous or envious or bitter or resentful. That's where desires become evil. James wants us to surrender those desires. So he tells us the natural progression. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. When we engage trials a particular kind of way, the, the way that draws us away from Christ to focus on self, to escape disappointment, to stuff our pain, to pursue self-loathing, when we act out in such a way, it leads to disintegration and the deterioration of our relationship with God and our relationship with others. The desires we do not surrender give birth to sin, and when that sin has fully grown, the end result is a form of death. Now, there is some debate here as to what James is getting at when he refers to death. Maybe James is referring to eternal separation from God. What Paul talks about in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. James could be warning people to avoid the type of death reserved for people outside of God's grace and forgiveness. Or maybe he's referring to something else. A form of relational death. What Adam and Eve experienced in the garden after they ate the forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve experienced a form of death, but it was not eternal separation from God. God reclothed them. God gave them a promise of future redemption. They did eventually experience a physical 
death. And they experience great hardship and trial in their relationship with one another and with the rest of creation. There was a loss of oneness. Is James referring to more of this kind of death? I don't think he's referring to eternal separation. Because in the next verse, he tells us he's not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. So there is a form of belief that Christians can adopt when experiencing tests and trials that embraces deception. And there is a form of belief that Christians can take on when experiencing tests and trials that embraces truth. People who are in Christ, people who are part of the church, we can be deceived. And we, when we experience trial and challenge, there are lies that we come to embrace. I'm not valued. I'm not loved. God looks over me. I'm one of the worst. I've been abandoned. I'm all alone. God is punishing me, and perhaps he's punishing me for no reason. James is saying when we buy into that thinking, we have been deceived. Don't let that belief take root. Surrender such thinking. Don't let it produce fruit in your life. It only leads to a form of death. So if there are particular desires we are to surrender when we encounter trials and struggles, what are we to seize? What are we to take hold of? Let's talk about what it looks like to seize good gifts leading to life. The trials you and I encounter, somewhere in the midst of experiencing them, God has some good gifts for you. You grow in what it means to cling to Christ. Suffering produces relationship. You grow in understanding how many of your longings for earthly things ultimately point to longings for God himself and what he provides in the new heavens and new earth. Verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. This is where I know James gets us. He recognizes when we experience trials, that we sometimes struggle to believe in the goodness of God. And he's saying, rather than a God who tempts us to do evil, rather than a God who abandons us, rather than a a God who gives bad gifts, God gives good gifts to receive. Part of experiencing joy in trial is recognizing God gives good gifts. That language, Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, What it's doing is it's contrasting something consistent like the sun or the stars and something that frequently changes like the positions of shadows depending on the situation. The language also points back to Genesis 1 when God says, let there be light. God does not destroy life. God creates life. God does not give gifts that produce darkness and disorder. God grants gifts that bring order and offer hope and healing and wholeness. God gives good gifts. So what do we do with suffering? 
How does God give good gifts when we agonize, when we experience deep disappointment? I flew into Nashville this week. I was there for a conference. I think all of you know it's a community that was rocked by the tragedy of a school shooting. I listened to the voices of people who were crushed, not because they knew those kids, but because something heavy and heartbreaking happened in their community. Three nine-year-olds, the age of my little Olivia. I can only imagine the grief and anger of those families. So if James answers the question, does God give good gifts in the midst of significant and suffering? Excuse me. If James answers the question, does God give good gifts in the midst of significant suffering and sorrow? With a yes. We might ask, how? How in the world does that happen? How does God give good gifts in the midst of significant suffering and sorrow like that? The Apostle Paul offers insight into that question in Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So God is taking those trials that we experience. God is taking that deep disappointment that we agonize over, and in his sovereignty, if you are in Christ, he is working it for your good. If the source of your pain is natural causes, if the source of your pain is some disease or bodily decay, if the source of your pain is some sort of relational breakdown, if the source of your disappointment is someone sinning against you, or you sinning against someone else, if the, even if the source of your pain is some sort of spiritual attack, the Bible is saying God will take what is intended to destroy to produce something good. Because of that, you can experience great joy. Here's Pastor John Piper. He is so sovereign over all the disasters, over all the disappointments of our lives, that he is able to take all of them and make all of them serve our everlasting joy. This sovereign grace is the ground of your joy in sorrows, not after sorrows, but in the sorrows of deep disappointment. Because God promises to work all things for good, he takes whatever sorrow you and I are experiencing, whatever grief we feel in situations of deep disappointment, whatever lack of healing or lack of earthly blessing, whatever form of poverty we experience, he does what seems to us is impossible. He brings life out of death. He gives us good gifts. Maybe some of you are asking the question, how could God be giving good gifts in a particular situation? This is a question that many of us need to approach the Lord with. I can't answer it for you. And another person can't answer it for you either. You need to approach the Lord in prayer, seeking to understand his purposes through his word. Rather than turning and blaming God, honestly and humbly bringing that question to the Lord, it very much reflects faith 
a desire to know God and his purposes and plans. As you discover his purposes and plans, one of the things you're going to likely discover, and this may be a hot take for some of you, experiencing disappointment, it can be a gift. Let me say that again experiencing the disappointment of not having our longings in earthly situations being satisfied, that can be a gift. I was reading a book this past week from a woman named Ruth Haley Barton. It's a book about spiritual habits, reading God's word, prayer, solitude, and silence. She wrote about how she came to understand disappointment in a particular situation, how disappointment in a particular situation, it became a gift. In one season of my life, I experienced a betrayal so deep that for quite some time I was almost paralyzed in relating to anyone outside of my inner circle of family and friends. While I had the normal feelings of anger and outrage, sadness and grief, there was an even deeper longing, the longing to be healed. I was aware that I had turned inward, had closed my heart. Distrust and suspicion had made me hard-edged and withdrawn. And I found myself crying out to God to do something within me that I could not do for myself. Regardless of the pain I had experienced, I did not want to live forever in a hardened and broken state. Her disappointment, the longing for healing and wholeness, that was a longing for the divine for life in the new heavens and new earth. When you and I experience trial, when we do not turn away from God, we awaken to a longing that is ultimately a longing for goodness and beauty and healing and wholeness. That longing points beyond things of this earth to something divine. The goodness and beauty and healing and wholeness offered by the Father in Christ. Our desires aren't intended to be ultimately satisfied on this earth. The disappointment we experience points to something divine, something greater. Disappointment can be a good gift. James culminates what he's saying about God giving good gifts, moving beyond gifts of light supplied in creation to gifts of redemption. He moves from gifts that are more ordinary to the extraordinary. The very best gifts. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. To help us understand God gives good gifts, James reminds us of the very best gift. The reference to word of truth, it is a reference to the good news of the gospel. The good news that you and I have been saved through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We no longer deserve the penalty of death. We have been given eternal life. We are no longer orphans longing to be part of a people. We are covered by the blood of Christ, adopted into his family. His blood unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are no longer defined by past sin and failure. We are defined by the goodness and righteousness of Christ. And we are no longer dead to sin. We are alive in Christ. He has birthed us into something new. In speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ, James uses the language, you are a first fruit of his creation, of his creatures. 
You, you might have guessed this, or you may know, a first fruit is special. Whereas the rest of the fruit, it is, it is certainly delicious, it's also somewhat ordinary. It doesn't stand out. A first fruit is different. First fruits were set apart for the Lord. The first fruits were the best fruits. The first fruits were something that pointed to a much greater harvest to come. In Old Testament times, first fruits were part of an annual festival reminding God's people the Lord keeps his promises to liberate, to set his people free from being a slave to her or his earthly life, bringing them into a promised land. First fruits were a reminder that God gives good gifts. In Christ, you are a reminder that God gives good gifts. James says the gift was given by his own choice. That means, brothers and sisters, God was not forced to love you by some unseen power in the universe. You did not choose God to love you. You did not earn God's love by some type of performance or because how smart you were to make a decision to follow Jesus. He gave you life by his own choice. That's good news. God gives good gifts. I think the message of most motivational speakers, it's take your eyes off yourself or take your eyes off your circumstances to achieve something great. Don't focus on your situation. Focus on what you can achieve. While the, the, the language James uses here may be similar in some ways, not allowing your situation of deep disappointment to define you, the motivation he offers is different. He's not saying, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or be stronger than your excuses. He isn't saying focus on what you can achieve. Instead, he's saying seize on to what your God has achieved and what, what he will achieve. And rather than toughen up, be stronger, James is saying, remember the God of your salvation. If he provided good gifts in the work of his creation, if he provided good gifts in the work of salvation, he will use situations of significant suffering for good, to grow us, to mature us, to increase our joy. As we conclude, I want to dig deeper into one implication of what James is hearing that we touched on in this passage. And this, that's this. Christian, you need not fear disappointment. We do not need to live to avoid disappointment. Parents, we do not need to avoid circumstances where our children experience disappointment. When your child is disappointed, you don't have to anxiously search for a solution to alleviate their disappointment. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to be disappointed averse. There's something going on in the broader culture that is working its way into the church that we must be aware of. One of the, the top podcast series on Apple this month is The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. And Rowling is the author of the Harry Potter series. A couple decades ago, she was the, the target of Christian criticism because the characters in her stories were witches. Today, she is the target of cultural criticism because of comments she has made pushing back on transgender ideology. 
In one of the episodes, we are drawn into the thinking of a 16-year-old who has taken on the name Noah. Noah describes feelings of dysphoria when entering female puberty, feeling disoriented and wanting a different body. It's heartbreaking. The journalist asks Noah, what would have happened if surgery to change from female gender to a male gender had not been available? If I hadn't killed myself, I would have at least tried. And I've dealt with self-harm and stuff like that. And I was dealing with emotional problems and I'm dealing with, with a lot of them now. Like transitioning didn't cure any of my disorders, but it made everything so much easier. So there is a view of humanity that many have adopted today, some Christians included. The most important thing about us is our earthly desires. And if this life is all there is, and desire is at the root of humanity, the ultimate fear, the ultimate road to despair is being denied desires. So the answer the broader culture offers when we are experiencing disappointment with a situation is to change our circumstances. I think sometimes we as Christians believe that this too is the antidote to our struggles. If circumstances change, then I will be able to believe that God is good. Then I will be able to experience joy in my trials. Then I will be content and satisfied. When our earthly desires are the most important thing about us, We believe surrendering those desires rather than leading to life, it leads to a form of death. Denying my desires is denying me my life. Being denied my desires produces disappointment that will inevitably lead to despair and a type of death. What scripture teaches, surrendering desires that produce disappointment, it actually leads us to the divine to who God is, and and to our longings being fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. Disappointment does not need to be eliminated. Christians need not fear disappointment. Christians do not need to, to avoid fear. Disappointment is something that Christians are able to embrace. One might say that disappointment actually increases our joy. Something we must be aware of we are presenting a false gospel if we are not calling people to surrender earthly desires. I think this is something really hard for us to say. Your earthly desires are not the most important thing about you. Your earthly desires, they do not ultimately define you. Your earthly desires, elevating them too much, can very much lead to death. And so for parents in the room, we want to disciple our kids through disappointment, rather than avoid disappointment, so that they can learn disappointment is not bad. Disappointment can point us to our longings for the divine. The disappointment we experience is not decisive. The God who brings good gifts is. When we are struggling to consider it a joy to face a particular trial, the answer isn't we change our circumstances The answer is a renewed perspective of our circumstances, not being deceived, embracing a right understanding of who God is. These situations we are experiencing, these burdens we are bearing, they are not curses. 
when we seize on to the light of the Father, the love of the Father, the goodness of the Father, we, we experience what seems impossible, joy in trials, because we know he has not abandoned us. We know he has not overlooked us. We know he is for us. We know he is working for our good because God gives good gifts. Amen. Let's pray.